This is Indonesia in depth. I'm Tanita. And I'm Sean Corrigan. The world's fastest growing humanitarian crisis as thousands of Rohingya refugees are spending a fourth night stranded near the border with Bangladesh. Hundreds of thousands have left their homes in Myanmar where they'd faced the military offensive. In the distance in Myanmar, where Rohingya villages have burned in recent weeks and the people have been driven out, there's another fire. It's ethnic cleansing, says the UN. Atrocities committed by the Myanmar military against the Rohingya has been one of the main talking points during two days of meetings between leaders from Asia and beyond. But at the end of the Association of Southeast Asian ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, the organization has been harshly criticized by some observers, claiming that its decision-making process is slow and ineffective, its economic integration is sluggish, and its summits are unable to respond to critical regional issues, let alone take a stand on serious human rights violations. With the prolonged ethnic violence in the Rakhine state in Myanmar and the mass exodus that followed, ASEAN is yet again under the spotlight. How has ASEAN Intergovernmental Human Rights Commission responded to the regional humanitarian and security crisis such as the one in Myanmar? Why doesn't ASEAN have the ability to put more pressure on its member states the way international organizations do. What can this tell us about ASEAN member state culture? Can you explain a little bit about sort of the powers that ICER has when it comes to human rights within ASEAN? So let me start with the objective of ICER. This is Yuyun Wahyuningrum. She's the representative of Indonesia at the ASEAN Intergovernmental Human Rights Commission or ICER, for the next three years. Before serving a post, she has been a staunch human rights activist and advisor to the Human Rights Working Group, or HRWG, which is a coalition of human rights organizations in Indonesia. So ICER was established in 2009 to promote and protect uh, human rights in the region. It has 14 mandates, 12 out of 14 mandates related to the promotion uh, rather than protection. So many people criticize uh, uh, ICER of being too promotion and not protection. It's rather imbalanced. While comparison to Komnas Ham or Commission of Human Rights of the Philippines or National Human Rights Commission of Thailand or other human rights commission in the region, ICER uh, has less protection mandate which uh, raise a lot of problems because a number of countries in ASEAN do not have national human rights commissions. So for them, justice is quite difficult. Uh, for Indonesian or Malaysian or Philippines or Thais or now Myanmar, they can seek justice at the national level first, then going to the regional level. But now the situation is quite difficult because uh, the protection mandate is not available at the regional level. So for the rest of the countries which do not have national human commission, they might be going to the international system. But one of the requirements of accessing the international system that they have to use all uh, mechanism at the uh, national, which justice often difficult to reach. May I ask which? So, which countries specifically don't have uh, that at the national level? Is it like Laos, Cambodia, Brunei Darussalam, Singapore, Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam? According to Yuyun, since the past few years, there have finally been some direct efforts made to help the turbulent situation in Rakhine State. 
ASEAN's very own Humanitarian Assistance Center, or AHA Center, has extended its aid missions, not only for victims of natural disasters, but also of humanitarian disasters, such as what happened to ethnic Rohingyas. In January, in fact, AHA Center has finally come into agreement to the terms of reference with the Myanmar government with regards to setting the rules for the delegates entering Rakhine State, like where they can go, who they should be in touch with, and who they will need to coordinate with. Yiyun told us that the delegate are already on the ground, but she wasn't sure how long they will be there for. It's good to hear that there is some maybe movement on you know providing relief to the refugees there. But for this particular example in Myanmar, this has been going on for such a long time. Mm-hmm. What do you think about some of the criticism towards ASEAN that this consensus decision-making process and this you know non-interference stance has gotten in the way for ASEAN to actually move quickly and make progress on the ground? I mean, specifically where if it's a consensus-based system, the, the government of Myanmar itself would have to agree that there's a problem and cr- almost criticize itself before having progress or decisions made at the ASEAN regional level. Any, mm-hmm. any thoughts on that? Well, as civil society, I, I criticize this kind of um, mechanisms. But now, now I'm in the system... Not necessarily that I stop criticizing the system, but but I think we can work around uh, the system. So it means it, we need to have a dialogue. We need to continue to have a, a talk all the time, to basically to make sure that we are on their side. We are not uh, naming and shaming because it doesn't work in this region. But we need to convince a country member of ASEAN that we have uh, good intention to really uh, help as a, as a family. That's how ASEAN has been calling themselves as a family. We need to help each other. We we need to be in uh, solidarity to each other. So this level of trust need to continue to establish because it is very fragile. Looking at the history of member state of ASEAN and how ASEAN was established, was full of war, distrust, uh, annexes, uh, and conflict among states in ASEAN. The year was 1967. The conflict in Indochina coincided with a time of political transition in Southeast Asia. Indonesia, after a period of domestic turmoil, had just ended its campaign of confrontation against Malaysia and Singapore. The new leadership under President Suharto wanted to re-establish ties with its neighbors on a new footing. The attempted merger between Singapore and Malaysia had also failed, and Singapore found in 1965 that it had to stand on its own. So I think the wound is not yet healed, but they need to continue to uh, work together and trust, I think, is very difficult yet very important uh, in ASEAN. And for me, uh, consensus means we have to do a lot of lobby. I think in in my uh, working now as human rights, which consensus may not work very quickly, uh, very effectively, because human rights uh, respond need to uh, be done uh, very quickly. But a consensus means for me that we need to lobby before the meeting, during the meeting, after the meeting. It's also the art of using certain terms that can be acceptable to all. So how to make sure that our ideas, our discussion will not be in the situation of death before arrival. We need to keep this alive, even though 
There has been number of rejection, but we should continue to talk about this. And then the government, the country in question, need to participate in dealing with the problem by first recognizing the issue. Then we can talk about how we can cooperate, how we can work together. But that's art of a negotiation, I think. We understand that it's not an easy feat to have 10 members with different ideologies and interests to come to a unified position. And further complicating this issue is the presence of external powers outside of the region, such as China and the US, that have their own interests within individual member states of ASEAN. Countries, including major powers, are resorting to unilateral actions and bilateral deals, and even explicitly repudiating multilateral approaches and institutions. It is unclear if the world will settle into new rules and norms of international engagement or whether the international order will break up into rival blocks. These strategic, strategic trends of big power... So oftentimes, this leads to situations where decisions have to be compromised to be accepted by everyone. The problem is that we're skeptical that this approach is actually the fastest approach when there has been a mass exodus of people out of fear from their own government and accusations of ethnic cleansing. The family of former ASEAN Secretary General Dr. Surin Pitsuwan, who passed away yesterday at the age of 68, will be performing funeral rites. Secondly, I would like to give you the, the story that the late Surin Pitsuwan told us uh, every time we complain about non-interference principle uh, and consensus-making uh, decision. He didn't mention the year, but in, in that time, uh, there was a conflict between Indonesia and Timor-Leste, and then uh, President Gusdur uh, said to the rest of the, the the leaders of ASEAN member states during dinner, look, I know that you have heard everything about the conflict between Indonesia and Timor-Leste. So now I would like to give you an update. This now during the, the, during the dinner. Since then, ASEAN has this tradition of working dinner to talk about this uh, very sensitive and serious issues. But then uh, one country member of ASEAN said, look, we have been working very hard from the morning. We talk about serious issues in the morning. Can we have a proper dinner and talk about light issues uh, during dinner? And then they, they agreed to this light dinner and then move this specific agenda to the official agenda. It can be done. I think that's because Gusdur established a practice that country in question need to update everyone. So no one will ask, you are interviewing my domestic affairs without asking each country which has problem at the moment have to update uh, the, the rest of member state on the issues. So non-interference principle of course can be breached, but we need certain ways of doing it. The events at the working dinner may sound somewhat trivial, but raising and addressing sensitive national issues at a regional event is a huge step for ASEAN members who have never done this before. And I was also proposed at that time uh, to Myanmar uh, government to have the ASEAN meeting. It's not a new tradition, but this is for the first time that ASEAN sit and discuss a situation that happening in member countries. Of course, still, 
with upholding all the principles. That was Retno Marsudi, Indonesian Foreign Minister, having her speech in 2017 about ASEAN's effort to resolve tension in Rakhine State. So if you can see now, the chairman's statement, the outcome document of ASEAN Summit, and the joint communique has certain theme of uh, specific issues. For instance, it was uh, uh, Indonesia is more uh, dispute, uh, seven steps to democracy of Myanmar, the dispute between Cambodia and Thailand over the prefer temple, and many other things. So these particular issues were very, very sensitive and actually discuss about the domestic affairs of the member state, which actually taboo because of non-interference principle. So there are a number of things actually happen because of this practice first institutionalized letter. So I think the logic behind this was that ASEAN member states need to feel comfortable with this practice. That and, and then secondly, this practice does not challenge their regime, their power. I also understand that human rights is still a sensitive issue in ASEAN in general. Uh, every time I met with sectoral bodies uh, in ASEAN, uh, they will be very cautious, they're very uh, careful in answering or talking to me as human rights commissioner or representative to ICER. Again, we're skeptical with how defensible this argument is in a situation like this, where the international community widely accepts that grave human rights violations, such as genocide, have occurred. I'd like to go back to your um, idea about this practice first, institutionalized later, uh, when you talk about wanting to have um, implement a protection practice from IHR first and then to institutionalize it. What kind of protection practice are you thinking of implementing from the IHR? Um, I think this could also be an opportunity to explain uh, about the composition of IHR itself. I understand that not all of them, uh, some of them are representative of the government. Yeah. Um, and I believe you're independent, is it true? Yeah. yeah. I think maybe that kind of dynamic could also be interesting when it comes to the protection practice from IHR. Of, uh, this year, IHR is a decade old. So IHR need to evolve quickly because uh, we were we, we were very disappointed about the shape of uh, or the design of the ICER, but then they said, oh, this is not the end of the body. This is, uh, the, the body will evolve into a more credible protectionist uh, human rights commission. But we haven't mm-hmm. seen that, or uh, perhaps the process of um, uh, finding the path toward establishing a protection mandate is quite difficult because of different regime. But if, if we can maximize what we have now, for instance, like the baseline study, so if we can continue to have annual report after the baseline study report, annual report can end up into many things. First, it can uh, come up with monitoring system. Second, it can come up with online monitoring system because we cannot hire this uh, consultant all the time, researcher cons- uh, uh, researcher all the time. We need to have a system in place in which um, uh, ICER 
can monitor the development or the regression of certain rights in one country. Especially, for instance, if ITER is very comfortable on CSR and human rights, why don't we continue to have an annual report on CSR and human rights? And finally, we need to have someone to be responsible on this and we can establish special rapporteurship. I found that if countries allow to do their own report, like the treaty bodies processes, let them write their own report, let them feel comfortable, just put them together because the act is more important than the product. So the report may be sanitized. The we can we can actually see more objective report from from UN bodies, UNIFEM or uh, UN Women or UNICEF or others. But what we need to appreciate is the act of reporting, and that need to be established at the regional level, which is not exist right now. In 2013, Indonesian government initiated the mini-UPR. The UPR is a universal periodic review, a report that governments submit detailing compliance, development, and an update of their human rights obligations. Mini because the number of countries only 10. So uh, Minister Martin Natalagawa invited all ICER uh, members come to uh, ASEAN Secretariat to hear the report from Indonesia Uh, on the uh, human rights progress and development in Indonesia since 1998. So uh, in the beginning, member countries of ASEAN were very uncomfortable. They they felt awkward to ask questions. That's something weird because they ask questions in Geneva, but why not in Jakarta? In fact, it was voluntarily intentioned by Indonesia to report to ASEAN This need to be established as a practice of reporting to your own, your your family. You are accountable to your family, um, the family that you will seek help actually, because they are closer than than uh, any countries uh, in the world or the UN. So I was not there, but people attended that meeting uh, told me that the question is actually quite critical and quite forward compared to the common questions posed by countries in Geneva in the UN Human Rights Council. So for instance, uh, Laos asked, why after the reform, Indonesia separate power between military and police? And then uh, Philippines asked, why after the peace in Aceh, there, were, there is a Sharia law? And then Thailand asked about Papua. These all issues are very sensitive for Indonesia. Indonesia may be defensive if this question will be questioned in Geneva. But in that uh, particular event, Indonesia answer all questions, not defensive at all, but rather invite more cooperation. So I think the idea was to establish this kind of question and answer in relation to human rights in this region, which is not exist, given the fact that ICER is very new. So number of uh, uh, protection practices. In the next three years, I would like to come up with advisory notes. Advisory notes is like general comment in the UN language. 
uh, advisory notes or general comment consists of clarification about the norms and what rights will be breached if certain rights are not uh, implemented and how to operationalize these particular rights in the national uh, programmatic approach or the regional uh, community building. So this advisory notes is actually in line with the mandate of ICER to provide uh, advisory services and technical assistance to member states upon request. The role of ICER, I think, after the launching of the ASEAN Humanist Declaration is to clarify the content uh, of human rights norms acknowledged in the ASEAN Human Rights Declaration, that's the role of ICER. And that would be contribution of ICER to the ASEAN community building so that the sectoral bodies in ASEAN will be able to draft or to design their program and their approaches based on human rights approach, looking at the step-by-step and some technical uh, operationalization or guideline provided by the ICER. So it is a time, after 10 years, it is a time for ICER to think and to to improve uh, how they can uh, provide protection. Perhaps we do not need to mention the protection. We just do it. Right. Uh, I think I think that's a very, very interesting idea, especially when you juxtapose this um, situation or, or how the behavior of ASEAN countries, when they report in the UN body, in an international organization, versus when they report or when they basically say anything in ASEAN. And on the other hand, how Indonesia would react. On the difference of those um, attitude of countries. Do you think it could be that these countries are more reluctant to not cooperate when it's an international organization, when in Geneva, because say they have more binding power, because maybe they have more sanctioning power? I think the UN High Commissioner Office has very massive power to not only like create stance and create agendas, but also kind of steer the discussion of the international community, which is an incredibly powerful tool to have. Um, so could it be that it's because they actually have more intervening power that countries would be more open or they don't have any more choice but to be open? I think because countries are part of UN members. Being a UN members, you have these all rules that they have to follow. So they have to be answerable to international community when they were asked. And the process of answering and questioning the situation located on concentrated in the UN Human Rights Council. So they send all the uh, diplomats to explain what is actually up in the country. So secondly, because reputation of the country is on stake if you don't answer the questions. Uh, answer can be defensive, can be honest, can be any other thing, but you need to answer all the questions. And third, there is a funding implication. If the country too closed, then donors will not know what is actually you need and how actually we can help you. Because right. uh, there are a number of factors why countries are quite open at the international level. Yeah, because of obligation, because reputation, because funding implication. Mm-hmm. 
which is not necessarily exist in the region. There is no financial implication when you are open or you are closed uh, in terms of human rights. There is no uh, reputation is among family members. There is no reputation on stake. If you think we are bad, then we are bad. If you think we are good, then we are good. Unlike other international or regional organizations such as the UN, there is relatively little to lose or even gain by speaking about your domestic situation in ASEAN forums. This could be due to the fact that all ASEAN member states contribute equally to the organization, regardless of their GDP level or whether they are a founding member. So as a result, there are very few means that member states can use to pressure other members in question. Where does ASEAN's general funding come from? How does that work? So ASEAN, member state of ASEAN contributed uh, around 1,700,000 US dollar every year and 200,000 out of that 1,700,000 uh, should be located for the ICER. So ICER has both internal and external funding to carry out their activities. There has been a number of discussion in ASEAN to um, to change this kind of contribution uh, according to the um, the GDP of the country, but uh, it has been rejected uh, and not having consensus among the ASEAN member states because ASEAN doesn't want to have uh, different rights of different countries toward the decision-making processes. So ASEAN doesn't want to be like African Union or the European Union. So they want to have equal footing, equal uh, voice, equal space, opportunity. And then the implication of that is equal uh, contribution. Thank you again to Yuyun Wahyuningrum, the Indonesian representative to the ASEAN Intergovernmental Human Rights Commission, or ICER. As always, we would love to hear your comments, feedbacks, and any pictures of stories that you'd like us to cover. Do send us an email to info at indonesiaindepth.com or follow us on Twitter at IndoIndepth. My name is Tanita. And I'm Sean Corrigan. Thank you for listening.